2: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make Spycast better, and you can help. We'd like to thank Mack Weldon for their continuing support of Spycast. You'll hear more about this later, but first, let's meet our guest.
3: Hey, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Chris Costa. I'm the Executive Director of the International Spy Museum. I am joined today uh, by uh, having an opportunity to interview Nick Rasmussen, former Director, of National Counterterrorism Center. Good morning, Nick.
0: It's great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here at the Spy Museum.
3: It's nice to see you. So, uh, very quickly, I'm going to make sure everyone understands Nick's background. It's uh, extraordinary. Uh, Nick was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center between December 2014 and his retirement from U.S. Federal Service in December 2017. He had previously served as deputy director since June 2012, uh, after returning from the National Security Council, where he served as special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism from October 2007. Nick previously served at NCTC from 2004 to 2007 in the senior policy and planning positions. From 2001 to 2004, he served on the NSC as the Director for Regional Affairs in the Office of Combating Terrorism. Currently, Nick Rasmussen leads the counterterrorism programs at the McCain Institute for International Leadership and is professor of practice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. So that's a mouthful, but- uh, sure that sure is a mouthful. That, that's exciting. We'll talk a little bit about that as we wrap things up. But again, thank you for joining us today to have a conversation, not just about terrorism, but uh, to talk about the future trajectory of the threat through your lens as the NCTC director. Um, I'd like to start off really with an article, an op-ed that you wrote with a friend of both of ours, Josh Giltzer, also a, a former C.T. policy advisor, uh, as a senior director at the uh, NSC, you guys wrote a opinion piece in the Washington Post titled, Presidents Keep Thinking of Terrorism as a Distraction. That's Dangerous. For our listeners, could you please summarize the key points of that article?
0: Yeah, well, thanks, Chris. It's a great opportunity to do so. Uh, what, what Josh and I were, were simply trying to say was that um, when new presidents come into office, they naturally have objectives uh, for their national security policy or their foreign policy, and typically those will will revolve around shaping or reshaping great power relationships, uh, our relationship with Europe, our relationship with China or Russia, or dealing with challenges like Iran or North Korea, and that's natural. And those the the, 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 the fact that those issues rise to the front of a new president's agenda should be should be, as I said, well, you know, um, treated as normal. At the same time, uh, Josh and I were arguing, um, it's a little bit um, misleading to think that there will be a point at which we can put terrorism and counterterrorism in the rearview mirror, at least not on the time horizon that's relevant to this president or probably the next president. The idea that we're going to have um, defeated with a capital D or destroyed with a capital D um, our terrorist adversaries around the world, um, I think is, is... is, is an expectation that we shouldn't necessarily walk around with. And if we deprioritize the counterterrorism work that we're doing around the world, or if we find that it's falling further and further down the priority list, um, I worry that we run the risk of maybe seeing a resurgence of that terrorism threat.
3: No, that's that's a fair point. And uh, I think you and I have talked offline about this idea that there might be a risk, my words, of a – overcorrection. Do you think that is viable? Do you think it's possible that there is a risk of that?
0: And I think it's it, it has as much to do with the the um, growth in concern about other threat vectors that we face as a nation as anything else. It's not that we're necessarily um, forgetting or turning our back on the set of terrorism threats we've faced since 9-11. It's just that we now face an even more complex threat environment dealing with issues like uh, resurgent nonproliferation concerns with, with Iran and North Korea, with the cyber threat that we face, with um, the concerns that we justifiably have over Russian meddling in our politics, uh, and, our, and and using social tools of social media to somehow uh, uh, impact what goes on inside the United States. These are all... Issues that should have risen to the top of the list of concerns for for this administration or any new administration. My only argument is, and I think you used the word overcorrect, my only argument is that we shouldn't overcorrect. We shouldn't um, dismantle some of the capability we've built over the last 18, 19 years um, to manage the terrorism problem, because if we do dismantle that capability, it won't be so easy to call on it again if we need to
3: so let me take you back you were the special assistant to the president for counterterrorism on the national security council staff so full disclosure i did that job for a year Uh, you were there a lot longer than me which is extraordinary Um, i have argued elsewhere that the enterprise the counterterrorism security group is a very important part of that foundation based on the learning not post 9-11, but actually pre nine eleven, the counterterrorism security group began. Can you talk a little bit about that enterprise, maybe the origin of it and uh, t- to date? Sure.
0: I think one of the things that I think we've always been proud of in the counterterrorism community is that we operate fairly cohesively and, and fairly effectively as a team. Um, and you're right to point back to the origins of of that cohesion and that, 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 cooperation. And they do go back before 9 11. Um, Dick Clark, who was at the time of, at the time of the 9 11 attacks was the white house coordinator dealing with counterterrorism issues, had at that time already formed, uh, a counterterrorism security group that met, um, quite frequently to manage counterterrorism issues so that when 9 11 came, there was already a set of relationships, a set of, um, institutions inside the executive branch that allowed, um, allowed the White House to manage and coordinate activity of all the departments and agencies around town that had a role to play in counterterrorism. And I would argue that in the years since 9-11, that structure has become only more more, more mature and more well-established. Uh, well um, that counterterrorism security group is comprised of a number of professionals from around the community who occupy the different mid-level, mid-senior level positions responsible for counterterrorism. That group meets uh, on a weekly or bi-weekly or sometimes tri-weekly basis to manage not only the set of current threats that we face, what is exactly the threat picture we're facing, how are we responding, but it also meets to try to set uh, policy and strategy and to tee policy and strategy issues up for the most senior leaders in our government. So I think if you look around the national security world, there's a lot of other issues, um, non-terrorism related that could actually benefit from the same kind of rigor and structure that we've brought to the counterterrorism fight for most of the last 25 years.
3: So I I couldn't agree with you more. That's a great characterization. So maybe you can help our listeners understand how NCTC actually fits into that enterprise and define NCTC's role and capabilities. Sure. So
0: NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, was one of those organizations um, created as part of the reform effort post 9-11. It was res- in response to the very, very direct conclusion um, reached by the 9-11 Commission, but then also validated by um, by congressmen, representatives, and senators with legislation. The conclusion that we had somehow failed as a nation to do everything we could to prevent the 9-11 tragedy, and that one of the ways in which we had failed was information integration. We had simply not brought together all of the information available to the U.S. government at the time of 9-11 in a way that would have allowed us to fully appreciate and understand the threat picture that we faced. And as a result, we weren't in a position to prevent that attack. NCTC was created to make sure that 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 particular piece of the problem would not happen again, that we would at least make sure that There was one place within the federal government where every bit of uh, relevant information related to terrorism and counterterrorism um, would reside. And so NCTC today serves as that information hub for the government. It is not an operational agency. There are no drones being flown, uh, commanded and controlled out of the National Counterterrorism Center. There are no doors being kicked down. There are no arrests or interrogations uh, being uh, undertaken by our officers. But NCTC is. The single voice, the single uh, what I would argue author- authoritative voice speaking on behalf of the intelligence community, uh, with its characterization of the threat environment, and so often, Chris, in the meetings that you would chair or that your colleagues at the White House would chair, uh, NCTC would be called upon to speak on behalf of the intelligence community and set the table for a policy discussion of terrorism and counterterrorism by articulating the 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 consensus view of what threat we faced. And uh, that's a heavy responsibility, to, to take all of the information available to the government, synthesize it into a single cohesive threat picture, and then a, put that on the table uh, to allow for, for good decision-making on policy and strategy.
3: Who did you answer to on a day-to-day basis? Who is your boss, your direct report?
0: I actually had, uh, in a sense, a couple of bosses. Uh, certainly, my direct report boss was the director of national intelligence uh, James Clapper in the pro- in the previous administration, and of course uh, Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence in the Trump administration, and that was a, a, a relationship I'm very very proud of. Um, in both cases, I, I admire deeply both Director Clapper and Director Coates, not only their service but their support for for national for the National Counterterrorism Center. But there was also, in a sense, an informal reporting relationship that I had to the White House uh, and to the um, Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to the President, uh, who, of course, was Tom Bossert for the first year uh, and a half of this administration. And, of course, there's a bit of a reorganization more recently that has changed the way those responsibilities are exercised. That was not really a direct reporting relationship so much as it was an informal reporting relationship. Uh, Much of the work NCTC does uh, to support policy and strategy is in direct support of the National Security Council, the National Security Council staff. And so I felt like I had an obligation to make sure I was also reporting to Tom Bossert and less frequently to uh, to H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor.
3: So some have argued, and uh, I would say disappointingly, but I don't want to add too much of uh, my, my personal opinion. It- It's important to understand your view, but some have suggested and characterized the counterterrorism security group, the CT enterprise as a counterterrorism industrial complex. And uh, I have some concerns with that characterization, but I'm wondering if you could comment and offer your opinion. Uh, In other words, are we weighted? Is the U.S. government weighted too heavily toward CT concerns? Because I might be a prisoner of my own CT experience.
0: You know, that's a question I ask myself all the time. And I something I referred to a few minutes ago when we just started the conversation, Chris, being a terrorism and counterterrorism guy, it's hard to argue that your issue, our issue should be a number one all the time. At a moment when we are seeing the kind of threats we are seeing from China, North Korea, Russia, the the entire cyber domain, concerns about Iranian uh, nuclear proliferation, it's hard to argue that that counterterrorism and terrorism sit atop that pyramid um, and should have the, the lion's share of the resource pie. So intellectually, I understand that. And as I look back over the period since 9-11, I also look at the amazing um, transformation we've, un- we've undergone as a country in terms of our ability to protect ourselves, the creation of a homeland security architecture that didn't exist prior to 9-11, the, the, the continued investment in, a, in an overseas counterterrorism capability to find, fix, and finish the terrorist bad guys around the world. It existed at the time of 9-11, but it is so much more robust so much more well-resourced and so much more capable now than, than it was 18 years ago, 17, 18 years ago. So a lot of investment has been made. There's no question about that. And maybe you could argue that some of that investment hasn't been as efficient as it should have been. We probably have, have spent more dollars to achieve that than we probably could have uh, or should have. But I would argue that that was a natural reaction to what we experienced as a nation on 9-11, so the question going forward, in my mind, is not has every dollar been spent as effectively as it should, because I'm sure the answer is no. But going forward, how do we make sure that we come up with a rational um, apportionment of our of our resource picture to make sure that we take care of not only the terrorism threat that we face but also all those other threats that I that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago and as I walked out the door at the National Counterterrorism Center last December I was thinking my successor is going to have to deal with this issue he or she uh, is going to have to um, fight for the right for their share of the pie in terms of resources across the intelligence community because it's a tougher environment than it was uh, during my tenure at, uh, at NCTC. And that's not something to be, um, um, to shrink from. That's something we're going to have to step, step forward and have a conversation about to make sure that we're spending our dollars in the right way.
3: And I think that's fair also because the further we get away from 9-11, there's a memory there. And we haven't had, knock on wood, a catastrophic CT attack directed against our infrastructure. So exactly. I wouldn't say there's a complacency, but there's a sense that maybe we have done a good job of of countering our terrorist threats. And as such, maybe we don't need that much resource allocation. You know,
0: and the thing I needed to be careful of when I was director of NCTC, and I still am conscious of this now, is it's not my role to walk around hyping the threat, making mm-hmm. everybody feel nervous or scared or concerned. Well, that's what terrorist organizations want. Exactly. Right? That, that's, that we're, we're, we do that, we're then um, meeting their objectives, not right. ours. So my objective when I was at NCTC was always to try to provide a clear, sober, and um, informed picture of the threat we were facing, balanced against other threats that we were facing, You know, as I said, from non-terrorism related issues. Um, It doesn't do us any good if we're walking around panicking about potential attacks. Um, We need to be clear eyed if we're going to, you know, as I said, develop that that appropriate resource response that I'm looking for.
3: So this is the tough part of the interview, because in some ways you're going to grade my homework or we're going to grade each other's homework. So you bridge two administrations. And uh, as indicated at the outset, long experience and hard work done at the NSC. So having been able to bridge two administrations as the NCTC director, you've had some time for reflection. You've been out of government since December, about the same length that I've been out of government. What do you think your major accomplishments were in this administration or are collectively are our accomplishments in the first year of the Trump administration in the CT space?
0: Well, I think certainly there was an acceleration of the campaign against ISIS, particularly in Iraq and Syria. Um, it's not as if the Trump administration arrived in January of, of 2017 to find that there was no campaign plan, no, no effort underway to defeat ISIS in Iraq and Syria. There certainly was. If you ask the CENTCOM commander, oh, were you working on the ISIS problem before the inauguration? My guess is the answer would be yes. They certainly were. But but it certainly was the case that the Trump administration sought to accelerate that campaign, to put more resources behind it, to maybe be willing to accept more risk by putting certain um, um, elements of U.S., uh, military forces further forward in the field to play a, a more aggressive advise and assist role for our partners in Iraq and Syria. And so I think we we reaped the benefits of that. Greater pressure was put on ISIS in Iraq and Syria uh, in a more concentrated way during twenty seventeen. And that that helped us certainly helped us contain the threat that we face from ISIS around the world. The ISIS leadership was put under greater pressure. The ISIS leadership was forced to disperse, was driven from its territorial safe, uh, safe havens in Mosul and then in Raqqa in eastern Syria. And so if you're the, if you're an ISIS leader and you're looking back on 2017 and on the first half of 2018, it's not been a good period for you. you your, your organization has been significantly degraded and certainly disrupted. Not completely, not to the point where I would use words like defeat or destroy, but certainly it's been a bad 18 months for you if you're an ISIS leader.
3: So I have also argued that there's a remarkable continuity, a staying arc between administrations on countering terrorism and keeping the nation safe from terrorist attacks. Do you agree that there was not a market change on how, we conducted CT between administrations, and that question is fraught with some peril. When you're in the administration, you're asked that question. But in some ways, that continuity between administrations served us well. Do you agree that there is a strong continuity?
0: I actually do, and I think we saw this from during the transition from President Bush to President Obama, and then we saw it certainly again during the transition from President Obama to President Trump the rhetoric that administrations use will often, in my mind, and I think you would agree with me, exaggerate the con- the, the discontinuity or the changes that, that go on from one administration to another, when in fact, there are changes, but there was, those changes are more at the margins or incremental changes rather than fundamental or wholesale changes. And what I said about the strategy, the counter-ISIS strategy, is a good example. Again, it's not as if we had to All of a sudden, on on the first day of the Trump administration, start anew with the idea of what do we do to defeat Iraq or ISIS in Iraq and Syria? There was already a campaign plan being executed by our military and certainly by our intelligence and law enforcement authorities as well. The new administration wanted to put its stamp on it. That's natural and and understandable, but it wasn't as if they were taking a wholesale different direction. And I would argue that some of the processes um, that administrations use for making decisions about use of force overseas, they will get tweaked over time and adapted to the, to the, to the needs of not only the president, but the other senior decision makers in a, in a particular administration. But by and large, I would argue uh, exactly as you have, Chris, that there's more continuity than there is discontinuity. And that's to the good. It's be- what it suggests is that when administrations come in. and and become fully informed of the intelligence picture that they are confronting with respect to terrorism, they often end up looking at the same tools that their predecessors looked at as well.
3: And with that continuity, you and I talked about this off mic a little while ago. To the extent you can, talk about the two crises we'll start in order that we dealt with in the administration one was, of course, the aviation threat to the extent that you can talk about the aviation threat as as we discussed earlier, we bonded as a new administration very quickly with the first crisis, and that was a a crisis between administrations that are bridged two administrations dealing with the threat, an acute threat directed at commercial aviation sure. and the second issue, and we'll revisit it in a few minutes, was our first operational uh, foray against Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, where we we lost a service member sure. uh, during that operation. But that all happened very very early. early
0: on. And again, you know, this is something that I think new administrations always find. There's a lot you can control about the environment, but there's also a lot you can't control about the national security environment. And that was certainly true for the incoming Trump administration, because as you suggest, very early on we were confronted with intelligence that gave us much greater concern than we already had about the threats to to civilian aviation or commercial aviation. Um, and it put the administration in the position of having to make real, hard, difficult decisions before even some of their structures and processes had been set up yet. So you hadn't even had, in many ways, meetings about strategy and where do, how do we approach the broad question of counterterrorism and terrorism, and then here you were having to, to, to make decisions about banning laptops or how do we, how do we respond with, with enhanced aviation security measures. That's tough. You would much rather have the, the, the time and space to be more strategic uh, in your approach to counterterrorism. But um, as you said, that was also a bonding opportunity. It forced the new senior officials of the administration to work together, to sit around the table with each other, um, debate and discuss how to evaluate intelligence, uh, debate and discuss how to develop aviation security measures that will not only serve our interests but work for our partners overseas. Um, and that was a pretty, a pretty intensive uh, uh, initiation um, into that, 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 uh, that counterterrorism problem set. And it was all splashing out on the front pages of newspapers, too, Chris, as you well know, because anything we do with aviation security has to uh, be rolled out to the public and has to be shared with airlines. And and before you know it, it's it's in the media. I'm actually, I actually feel quite good about the the outcome of the work that we did in that period because we reacted appropriately, but in a measured way. We didn't take a set of global steps that would have shut down um, or, or dramatically curtailed the, the ability of Americans or, or people around the world to to fly and do what's necessary to get from place A to place B. But we also did a great job, I thought, of enhancing security, responding to very specific threat information that, that, uh, um, um uh, that, that gave us good reason to be concerned, but, but not overreacting. And so I think it was a good news story.
3: I, I concur wholeheartedly. And, uh, also I, I would, uh, Argue that we also built relationships with our foreign counterparts, or we we continued the relationships, but the new administration had an opportunity to connect with our foreign partners. Do you want to talk a little bit about the international dimension? No, I,
0: it's exactly right, and these are this is always one of the more challenging parts of our counterterrorism work because sometimes we in the United States will take certain measures but not be in a position to explain exactly why we are taking those measures. We can maybe give a, uh, a general view or a general description of the kind of intelligence that, um, that is giving us concern and why we are, you know, for example, banning laptops for a period of time on, in the cabins of certain airliners coming from certain locations overseas. But if you're our overseas partner uh, in, an, in another capital around the world, you may wake up one morning and find that that's been announced by the TSA or has been uh, leaked into the newspaper, and you may feel like you haven't been consulted or you didn't have uh, as as much intelligence um, about that threat as you would have liked. So it fell upon you at the White House, Chris, and certainly me at NCTC as well, to work those relationships with our foreign partners to make sure that they understood why our concerns were heightened, why we were taking the measures we were taking. and. And to share as much of that intelligence picture as we could um, reasonably share with our partners overseas. That is a tough job because they invariably want more and we invariably have to give less than they want. Um, And so there were – it's a good news story now in retrospect, but at the time there was some real friction and some friction points, particularly in some of our relationships with the United Kingdom and some of our other really close – counterterrorism partners. But uh, as, as you suggested, Chris, it was also, I think, a very good early opportunity to get our sea legs um, in working with other partners around the world.
3: And it largely happened unnoticed by the American public, which is why it's so valuable to, to hear your perspectives on that time. So at the same time, uh, it was very personal to me. Um, That's another story, but the idea of a U.S. counterterrorism raid that took place in Yemen, that literally was in the first week of the administration. Um, Rather than talk about any tactical details, I, I think that operation reflected counterterrorism pressure and intelligence raid. And I listened to you many times after that day characterize what U.S. counterterrorism pressure look like in other places in the world. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean when you characterize USCT pressure? Define that a little bit.
0: So one of the things I think we have been tremendously successful at in the period since 9-11 is integrating all of the different pieces of our counterterrorism community in a way that gives us a very sharp, pointy end of the spear so that when we become aware of particular threats of individual terrorists or groups of terrorists in particular locations around the world who are engaged in concrete plotting that is aimed at doing harm to Americans, um, we can do something about it because we have the ability to project power around the world, particularly in some of the more far, far-flung far conflict zones. Um, like the Arabian uh, Peninsula, specifically Yemen, certainly in Iraq and Syria, the Horn of Africa, North Africa. In each of these locations, we're able to, if the intelligence picture comes together in the way that we, that, that we can uh, rely upon it, we can then act to make sure that terrorism threats do not materialize, that they actually are disrupted or mitigated before um, they turn into real... You know, lives lost of Americans around the world or here at home. So, when I say counterterrorism pressure or terrorism uh, or counterterrorism pressure, it's a euphemism for our ability to pretty much um, deliver a find, fix, and finish solution against our most dangerous terrorist adversaries wherever they are in the world. And that's something that very few nations have, and it's something we should. Um, not only be proud of, but continue to make sure we make the necessary investments in so that we don't lose that capability. Because often threats arise, and they arise quickly, and if you don't have that tool in your toolbox, the ability to bring terrorism pressure on, on your terrorist adversaries, um, you will find yourself paying the price um, for having dismantled that tool.
3: So that's a great segue to a little more detail on ISIS. You already characterized the successes that we had against ISIS last year in the physical caliphate. How do we sustain those successes going forward?
0: Well, this is a, a, a difficult balancing act because we don't want to make it the permanent responsibility of the United States to ensure peace and order in conflict zones around the world, whether it's Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Horn of Africa, North Africa. And so there are certainly moments at which U.S. power is the essential game-changer in delivering a positive outcome, or um, as we saw in Iraq and Syria over the last year in the effort against ISIS more aggressive U.S. support for surrogate and partner forces has put us in a position to enjoy some some success against ISIS. But can we do that for the next 15, 20 years? I'm not sure that that, that, that is sustainable either from a resource perspective or certainly politically. So the, the, the needle we need to thread here is how do you find partners on the ground, partners in the region to bear that burden and to make sure that that terrorism threat doesn't um, enjoy some kind of resurgence. That would argue for a terrorism or counterterrorism strategy that focuses very heavily on identifying partners, on advising, training, assisting, equipping where possible, those partners to make sure that they can do the work for us um, around the world that we need that we need done and that we don't have to bear that burden all on our own. That is not always the most fun strategy to try to execute because our partners Um, around the world are not always a perfect bunch. Um, They may be lacking in capability. They may be lacking in respect for certain um, um, values and principles that we hold dear related to human rights and and conduct uh, in accordance with the the law of war as we understand it. And so relying on this kind of strategy is not an easy thing um, because in some ways it it would feel easier and more effective to do it ourselves. And yet that also is not sustainable, as I said, from a political or a resource perspective.
1: We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. And yet
3: we're still engaged in places like Syria. We're still putting pressure on remnants of ISIS. So I want to go back to your Washington Post article. I think it's fair to ask um, your thoughts as articulated in that article about a precipitous withdrawal from Syria. Of course, I argued all last year that we would not precipitously withdraw out of Syria. We will continue to put some pressure with partners on ISIS. Can you talk about some of your concerns?
0: Sure. I think a sustained presence in Syria is essential from my perspective for two reasons. One, to do the very specific work you just described, Chris, of keeping pressure on the remnants of ISIS and certainly also on the pieces of Al Qaeda that that are also resident in Syria and that have taken advantage of the conflict there um, to gain a foothold in that part of the world. But even beyond that, I think the the physical presence of U.S. forces on the ground in Syria gives us a say at the table as some kind of resolution is ultimately reached for the conflict in Syria. Were we to withdraw completely from Syria or to draw down to the point where our forces were a, a, a very small presence? It would make an already difficult conflict in Syria, in my mind, even worse, because American power would no longer be on the table to help try to contribute to a positive solution. I think none—I think all of us would would agree that Russian influence in Syria is something that showed up on the scene a couple of years ago, and we wish it hadn't. Um, But we are now dealing with the cards that—we're dealing with the cards that were dealt. and I don't think it would help matters if the U.S. were to, to exit from the scene in Syria right now. I understand the president's frustration. He doesn't want to inherit a permanent deployment scenario. I'm sure he didn't come into office thinking that he would have troops on the ground for the the entirety of a four-year or an eight-year presidential run. And I understand and sympathize with his desire to, to minimize the U.S. footprint over time. But as we've done in Afghanistan, unfortunately, I think um, – um, the president, as he decided in Afghanistan to sustain our presence for a longer period of time, will also come to see over time that the same requirement will exist in Syria.
3: Right. And we'll talk a little bit about Afghanistan, our South Asia strategy, a little bit later in our uh, discussion. I want to go back to, since you brought it up, uh, al-Qaeda. Do you do you get the sense that they laid low, let ISIS stick their head up, and uh, they are are at risk of essentially uh, resurging, imposing a greater threat to Western interests.
0: You know, it's... One of the things I, I came to appreciate as director of, of NCTC is you don't have the luxury in the counterterrorism world of focusing on just one right. set of threat concerns. And so even though the media and daily um, tempo of our work often focused very much on ISIS and very much on ISIS in Iraq and Syria. It was never the case, never, never, never the case, that we weren't equally diligent in our focus on al-Qaeda. Um, you alluded to this earlier, Chris. We were certainly managing um, very significant significant concerns about al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which has always been one of uh, al-Qaeda's more lethal regional affiliate groups um, with a, a – which has remained hell-bent on carrying out attacks against the West, including the United States, including in the aviation sector. So even as ISIS came to the top of the list and was dominating the media and dominating our daily lives, it's not as if al-Qaeda really receded from the threat um, set of threat concerns that we had. Um, So in my mind, and then then actually even worse, al-Qaeda found ways to take advantage of the chaos in Iraq and Syria, particularly in Syria, and embedded themselves in the Levant in a way that they had not been embedded before. And so we gradually saw a migration of key al-Qaeda figures from other theaters of war around the world uh, who have now moved into Syria um, and taken advantage of the fact that Syria in many places is ungoverned. And they... And so you have individuals there with very strong al-Qaeda backgrounds, very strong al-Qaeda Rolodexes, uh, people who are well-connected into the al-Qaeda world. And that worries me. And so if we, going back to your question about our military presence, if we step back from our military presence in Syria right now, uh, we run the risk of letting those al-Qaeda elements in Syria um, become even more dangerous than they already are.
3: So that gets to this problem of Wandering mujahideen in quotes, right? The idea that you have well-trained ISIS operators—not uh, to give them too much credit by calling them operators—but ISIS terrorists, as well as Al Qaeda. Do you worry about those that have been trained? The leftover problem, very much reminiscent to the 1980s uh, in the jihad that was fought in uh, Afghanistan.
0: It's exactly right, and you know, you know, you know this as well as I do, Chris. When the when we saw three, four years ago, the the numbers mounting of foreign fighters who traveled to Iraq and Syria to participate in the conflict there, we were initially, I would argue in retrospect, kind of over-focused on volume. We kept counting and counting and counting, and the numbers kept going up and up and up. And I think at one point we pointed to the fact uh, that there were probably over 40,000 individuals who, from outside Iraq and Syria, who had tried to travel or traveled to the conflict zone to fight for one side or another um, in the war in Syria. Actually the number is really less important than the quality of the person. And so as we've seen the conflict um, evolve over time in Syria, we started to worry more about these particular mujahideen or terrorists as you describe them who had specific skills or were part of a specific network who might carry that work with them from place A, Syria, to either their home country or some other new location around the world. And so it's put a lot of pressure on our intelligence community to identify who these key individuals are, to track them, to make sure that we share whatever information we have about their movement with other countries around the world so that they can engage their law enforcement authorities or their intelligence authorities to do something about it. And that, that's going to be a hangover effect of the war in Iraq and Syria for a number of years, uh, this wandering. I hadn't actually thought of it in those terms, Chris, the the wandering Muj um, um, imagery is a good one because those individuals can scatter to the four corners of the earth and yet they carry with them their skills, their wartime experience, and most importantly, their, their uh, contact list on their iPhone. And that's what scares me the most.
3: Well, to that point... Um scattering across the globe. We're, we don't have enough time to talk about the entire globe, but I just want to for a moment talk about Africa because we've seen some threat streams emerge from Africa emanating from places like Libya. And of course, we saw the tragic uh, uh, attack directed against uh, Americans last last year in Niger. Uh, and yet I've read recently that uh, we're going to downsize some of our footprint in West Africa in particular, are you concerned with that that kind of trend, or do you just think that we've got to husband our resources?
0: You know, it, it, that's a great question, because this, it's, it's theaters like that in North and West Africa that really put our terrorism strategies to the test, because... It's not hard to make the argument that we need to be in Afghanistan right now. At least not it's not hard in my mind to make that argument. It's not hard to make the argument that we need to sustain our involvement in Iraq and Syria for a longer period of time. It is sometimes more difficult to argue for large expenditures of resources, whether it's money or personnel, in some of those other theaters. And you mentioned Africa, because we haven't experienced here in the homeland direct threats emanating from West Africa or North Africa. And yet we also know intellectually that if we allow our terrorist adversaries to enjoy safe haven over a sustained period of time, those threats will ultimately materialize. So I'm, I'm actually sympathetic to my colleagues at the Pentagon right now because I would not argue that the work in Africa is, the, is our first tier counterterrorism priority. It is probably a second tier counterterrorism priority. But when you're also being pulled in the direction, if you're DOD and you're being pulled in the direction of supporting potential contingencies on the Korean peninsula or potential contingencies involving Iran, do you have enough to be able to spread the blanket across all four corners of the bed? And that's the metaphor I often used in talking to uh, members of Congress about our, our counterterrorism work. It sometimes felt like we had a king sized bed, but with a queen sized quilt trying to cover that bed, and so you were tugging on the blanket at, uh, or quilt at one end, um, but it was ultimately exposing another corner of the bed and I unfortunately feel like Africa is that theater where we're probably going to leave ourselves exposed in some, in some ways. There is some good news though there though, and that some of our partners prioritize Africa, particularly the French. Military and French intelligence services do quite a bit of good work in key parts of Africa, and we do some relying on them in those areas.
3: Good point, and uh, yeah, particularly the French, uh, great partners in, in West Africa. Um, you, you mentioned it, just a few words on Afghanistan, our South Asia strategy. I had the benefit of hearing you make a cogent argument on the necessity to have a CT platform in Afghanistan. That part and parcel was an important part of the argument for a sustained presence. So if you could just talk a little bit about that briefly.
0: You know, you talked about continuity and change earlier in the conversation, Chris, between administrations. As different as the Obama and Trump administrations are in many, many ways, and I don't need to catalog the ways they are different, they wrestled with almost exactly, President Trump and President Obama wrestled almost with the exact same question with respect to our force presence in Afghanistan. President Obama wanted to know where is the return on investment? Why are, are things year after year not getting better in Afghanistan, despite the fact that our our commitment is so expensive, so costly, and, and has gone you know, year after year? President Trump certainly came in feeling like he had committed in the campaign to downsizing our involvement in places overseas like Afghanistan. So why can't we get to a point where our uh, our security concerns in Afghanistan can be managed without a huge US troop presence and without a, uh, a large expenditure of dollars, billions of dollars, year after year. And the answer, I think, unfortunately, is, in, at least in the medium term, is that we probably can't manage our security concerns in, a, in South Asia without that troop presence, without that presence. And it's for precisely the reason you said. Um, it's difficult to do counterterrorism operations remotely. The kind of CT pressure campaign that I talked about before is not one you can conduct sitting here inside the continental United States. And so if we are going to gather the necessary intelligence about threats that are brewing in Afghanistan and Pakistan and do something about it, that's going to require a sustained presence, a platform on the ground. Now, maybe that can be downsized, uh, further from its, from the, the certainly from the, the, the peak that it was uh, at the height of the Afghan war. Um, but to me, it argues for um, sustained presence there, despite the fact that it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like a rewarding experience, certainly not for those who served there in harm's way. I know that. But it also, it's hard to measure year after year where we are actually making progress. And as the president was making his decision about this, um, I was sympathetic, as I said, to the, to the questions he was raising, um, about why, why, why. And I think one of the best arguments I heard around the table at that time uh, put forward was one of the participants likened what we were doing in Afghanistan to life insurance. You don't like having to pay premiums on life insurance, especially if you don't expect to get sick, but it's not responsible to do otherwise. Um, And so if you think about our presence in Afghanistan as a hedge or a life insurance policy against a resurgence of terrorist activity there, then it's easier to understand and you don't like it. It's expensive. It feels like money. Sometimes it feels like wasted money, but if you didn't do it, You'd feel a lot
3: worse. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. Life insurance—the metaphor of uh, uh, bed sheets—all apt. Uh, And we have not simple
0: metaphors for simple minds like my (laughs) own. I guess you and I
3: both uh, very visual. And what about Iran? So we haven't even talked about that. And of course, Iran doesn't seem to pose a direct threat to the United States today, maybe a distant threat, always omnipresent, always a bit of a spoiler when it comes to Iran's support to terrorism. And then we go through a cycle of sanctions. Are those things enough? And what about Hezbollah could you talk about?
0: So, again, we hearkening back to what I said a few minutes ago, the fact that we were so ISIS-focused over the last few years... Shouldn't lead anybody to believe that we weren't also carefully tracking what Iran was doing to build its terrorism capability, its capability to do asymmetric things, to present asymmetric threats to the United States around the world. And those issues always come more to the fore whenever the pressure campaign against Iran starts to heat up uh, and usually tied to the nuclear issue. And so I expect going forward in the next several months, we will see some of these issues come to the fore again. And the way I've always thought about it, Chris, is that Iran knows that it would probably not, would certainly not um, prevail in a direct military conflict against the United States. Our military power is sufficient, certainly over time to inflict enormous harm on Iran, on the Iranian state. Iran does, however, understand that it has the capacity to carry out, to present asymmetric threats to the United States. And so if we ended up in a position where the U.S. and Iran were, were going down a path towards conflict, the Iranians have built themselves a pretty well-developed playbook. They have, uh, the way I, again, the, the imagery, the metaphor I have in my mind is a playbook that exists that allows them to flip the book open to, uh, to tab F or to tab H or tab Z and pull something off the shelf that they've prepared for and resourced and planned for um, to carry out an operation that would somehow damage US interests somewhere around the world. Knowing that means that we've got to be prepared to counter that threat. And so that's the work that you were alluding to. Uh, this is not, this is not a hot war that we're experiencing with with Iran right now, but it's certainly the kind of um, looming conflict that gives me great concern. the The burden is on us to make sure that our toolbox is full, so that when if we get to the point where Iran pulls that playbook off the shelf and decides to go after an embassy in a in a capital somewhere around the world, a U.S. embassy in Africa or Asia or engages in a kidnapping operation against uh, uh, you know U.S. person uh, somewhere in the world, that we have the ability to respond and to make sure that the Iranians understand that that's not, that, that carries great costs. And
3: they know, the Iranians know that uh – there are buttons that they could push that would bring us to a point of hostility, and they don't want that. You you made that point. They don't want a hot war. So this conflict is something I wanted to ask you about. Euphemistically, it's known as gray zone conflict. Exactly. So can you talk just a, a bit more about that? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's... The asymmetry. It's
0: particularly challenging because... What, you know, when you're thinking state versus state conflict, one of the things we've traditionally relied on the intelligence community to do is to assess and identify what the various red lines are. If we do X, then Iran is likely to do Y. If Iran does X, then we are likely to do Y. And so long as we don't cross over this particular red line with any of our actions, they won't respond with any act, you know, reactions on their side as well. That's an inexact science when you're talking about state actors, when you're talking about governments. You can imagine it's even an even more exact science when you're talking about gray zone conflict, where in some ways the people who would do us harm might not even be Iranian citizens or or, or Iranian um, card-carrying members of the Iranian armed forces or the intelligence services. So um, the use of surrogate actors, the use of... of um, um, capabilities that allow Iran to deny uh, or deflect attribution for the, for the actions that they would take, all of that makes conflict much harder to manage because it becomes less predictable. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I would hesitate to hearken back to the Cold War as being the good old days, or um, and I would never look to do that. But in some ways, the the possibility of sliding inadvertently into conflict between the United States in a country like Iran is actually increased because of this gray zone activity. And the same is certainly true of Russia. I'm no Russia expert, but the kind of things that the malign activity that Russia is involved with around the world, including in the cyber domain, um, there will come a point at which some nation, perhaps the United States decides that that's actually something we won't tolerate or accept any longer. And that could, that could bring us into direct conflict. Um, and yet, that's a very different kind of conflict than, you know, managing tanks through the Fulda Gap, at the you know as we did during the, the right. Cold War.
3: A lot simpler world. A
0: lot simpler. And
3: world. Uh, we've dealt with a lot of complexity as it relates to the counterterrorism space, and. Uh, Oftentimes, we're challenged, I think you would agree, we're challenged by folks that say, hey, what are your policy prescriptions that address root causes? I didn't hear anything today about root causes. Uh, you know, Chris and and Nick, uh, what are you guys doing to focus on, you know, those drivers of jihadist movements, for example, the grievances, the disenfranchised sure. youth? You
0: know, those are absolutely fair questions. Um, I, I come at this with both... With- of a, of two minds. On the one hand, I'm a strong believer in the kind of capacity-building work that we do overseas as a government, whether it's the Defense Department, the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, the Treasury, our intelligence agencies. We certainly have got to do as much as we can to build up capacity of our partner partner countries around the world so that they can confront their own terrorism-related challenges, and also try to engage in the kind of support to those countries that also improves the environment and decreases the appeal of the, of the jihadist narrative that you are describing. So I'm, I would not argue for a second that we ought to downsize our investment in those kind of programs overseas that would get at the root causes uh, of terrorism overseas. At the same time, and this is where the other side of my brain kicks in, After having done this pretty much nonstop since 9-11, I come at this particular part of the problem with a lot more humility than I did back then, Uh, maybe at the start in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. If you can think, Chris, of how many meetings you attended over the course of your career, not just your time at the White House but your career, dealing with the terrorism problem that we faced emanating from Yemen, for example, probably in the dozens if not the hundreds. I certainly attended hundreds of meetings related to Yemen, a number of a number that is far disproportionate to what Yemen brings to the table economically or politically, uh, certainly on a global basis. And yet here we were, focused on this tiny little country, this tiny poor little country, because of what harm could come to us from Yemen. And I came came away from that experience not thinking that we were stupid or or, or wrongheaded, but just that we should bring a lot more humility to the task when we say that we're going to fix a place like Yemen or that we're going to bring a solution, that we're going to solve a conflict, that we're going to um, defeat a terrorist organization. I think now I am much more inclined to use words like manage a threat or um, contain a threat or downsize a threat or... Um, decrease, diminish, words like that, that are less categorical than defeat or destroy. Um, because I'm not sure it, it really falls within the capability of the United States or perhaps even within our responsibility to solve regional conflict everywhere, exists, everywhere it exists and everywhere it creates, um, um, everywhere it adds to the terrorist um, uh, narrative. I mentioned Yemen, but I could have made the same argument about Somalia, uh, the same argument about Afghanistan, the same argument about Iraq, the same argument about Syria, the same argument about North Africa. Um, And so it's not that I'm arguing for a retrenchment of American power or giving up or um, um, retreating from the the field to to let the bad guys win. Absolutely nothing like that. I just would argue for a little more humility – in a little more clear-eyed vision about whether we really are going to transform some of those environments overseas where terrorism thrives. We can do our share to mitigate the threat that comes from those environments, and we can certainly do more to protect Americans and to, as I said, go after the bad guys. But I I don't necessarily want to hold myself to, to that standard of solving terrorism in those places where terrorism thrives.
3: Well, I'm smiling, Nick, because you used the word humility three times. So this isn't a canned interview. We didn't know where this was going exactly. So I want to focus on that word for just a minute for our listeners, because I use the word humility a lot. I think it's an important attribute for intelligence professionals and certainly counterterrorism professionals. And I think you cannot succeed in the counterterrorism work that we did without having a sense of humility because of the sheer scope of the problem the the intelligence that uh, makes you sleepless on many nights if you can just uh, talk for just a moment about your word choice and that idea of humility because I think we owe it to our audience to understand the leadership leadership aspect of this business
0: well one of the difficult challenges about the terrorism and counterterrorism business is that those who are charged with these responsibilities simply have to have a zero tolerance for failure because failure means that in most cases that a fellow American was killed or was hurt. and that that's pretty hard to accept. So on those occasions when that has happened, and I certainly feel, felt that most acutely during my tenure in, in government, when, it, when things happen here inside the United States, whether it was the Boston Marathon bombing or the attack in San Bernardino, California, or the um, terrible, terrible uh, massacre at the Pulse nightclub uh, in Orlando, Florida, you can't help but have those experiences happen and feel like, what did we do wrong? How did we fail? Why did that happen? How could that have happened? How? What could we have perhaps done as a community, as a counterterrorism community, to make sure that people didn't suffer that way? Um, and so those those always led those those terrible, terrible, tragic events always led to very difficult periods of introspection and humility inside the counterterrorism community as we looked and, and thought, how do we get better? How do we make sure that we don't make a mistake? not saying that any one of those was the result of a mistake, but how do we make sure that 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 particular thing doesn't happen again? And so if if you can't approach the work you are doing in counterterrorism with humility, you shouldn't be doing it, because we have a zero tolerance for failure, and yet it's almost impossible to achieve um, that 100% success rate. You strive, you strive, you strive to make sure that it doesn't happen again, but invariably it does happen again, somewhere, somewhere. Somewhere, in some place around the world, there's an American who will who will um, be hurt, killed, injured, taken captive uh, as a result of terrorist activity. And so that means our job isn't done, and then we've got to keep at it.
3: Well, I think our listening audience will appreciate those insights so I'm going to pivot a little bit and uh, so we can get to a wrap-up I, I could stay here and listen to your insights all day long but I know you have a job you've got to move on to um, let's just talk a little bit about homeland security talk about countering violent extremism and uh, also the homegrown violent extremism threat the HVEs lone wolf terrorism Have we done enough in that space? Did we, back to the report card, did we do enough last year? I'll tell you,
0: if I leave government with any real regret after serving across multiple administrations, Chris, that's the one area where I feel like we could have and should have done more. And in the first instance, that is the the, the single biggest threat we face here in the homeland right now is is from that homegrown violent extremist, not the sleeper cell from Al-Qaeda or the operative who somehow was inserted here by ISIS as part of a group to carry out a terrorist attack. We worry about those things. We we, we have erected defenses to make sure those things are managed. But it's really that homegrown extremist, that person who developed in their views here, who radicalized here inside the United States, not, um, not abroad, that that's the person who uh, the, the threat that we face most acutely here in the homeland. And you've heard Director Ray of the FBI talk about a thousand cases nas- nation- nationwide that the FBI maintains um, focused on individuals potentially who fall into this category. So that threat is our number one threat. And yet our response to that here inside the United States has been, I would argue, more localized and episodic. Um, There are pockets of real brilliance, I would argue, here in the United States, where the federal government working with state and local government working with non-governmental organizations have all come together in a very cohesive way to counteract extremism in that community. But I think that's the exception rather than the rule. And so if I had a criticism to make of my work and the work of my colleagues during the Obama administration and the Trump administration, is that we didn't leave, we didn't erect enough of a nationwide infrastructure to do this kind of countering extremism work, not just in a couple of cities, but in almost every city around the country. Because one of the things about this threat, Chris, is that it's no longer localized in places like a New York City or a Chicago or an LA. You could just as easily find that radicalized lone actor in a rural setting in you know, the Mountain West or, uh, or or Phoenix or... And he might
3: not be a sympathetic jihadist. He could be on the right exactly that's side the, of the spectrum. That's
0: the other thing is, you know, those of us in the terrorism world tend to think of this as, um, how do we get to the to the jihadists, or the, the international terrorists who are doing this here in the, in the homeland? But it's just as likely, if you're talking to a community about this problem, they want to also talk to you about that person who may be motivated by... Um, a racial ideology or white supremacy or a right-wing ideology or environmental extremism. There's a whole other set of potential motivating ideologies that cause people to do the things that terrorists do. And so if the if the government, Homeland Security, the Justice Department, FBI, uh, the White House, is going to help communities cope with that threat, they need to help them cope with not only Omar Mateen in... Orlando, Florida, they need to help them also cope with Charlottesville style violence as well,
3: right? Um, You and I lived through Charlottesville and so we don't have to address it, but uh, that's exactly right We know that that threat can emanate from all different places and we and
0: the ideologies may be different but in many ways the pathway a person goes down psychologically to get from being simply a consumer of a hateful ideology to tra- travel down the path where you where you become not just a consumer but somebody who will act on and mobilize and carry out actual violent acts um, in support of that ideology, that pathway looks a lot very similar. Whether it's white supremacy that drives that person to carry out those hateful acts, or ISIS ideology, or the path ideology. to
3: radicalization exactly. is very sy- systemic. It's very exactly. predictable in some ways. And
0: so, if it, again, you ask kind of have we done enough? My answer is no. I, I would say that what we did was good; it just wasn't scaled to the size of the problem that we know is out there. And so, if I had any um, recommendation to make to, to my colleagues who, who remained in government, would be try to find ways to, to up our up our game.
3: So you're not alone there in your uh, self-criticism, candidly. That, and I didn't know what you were going to say when we we discussed CVE, but um, I would Will uh, equally say that uh, I feel that there were some shortfalls last year. We didn't focus on CVE, and uh, I have touted the idea that the private sector uh, can also fill some of those gaps. And I, I discussed this with some uh, some nonprofits that are interested in doing good work. Um, Globally, so I think CV is one of those spaces they can. But I, I don't think we did enough uh, last year, so uh, I think there's room for us to fill some of those gaps. And yet, we don't have an extensive problem like they do in Europe. No. clearly
0: and that, that and that's worth. It. Lest we leave listeners with the idea that there's a terrorist lurking on every street corner here in the United States, there isn't. We don't face nearly the size, scale, or scope of the problem that our partners and friends in Europe face right, exactly. every day. But the point I was making is that literally any community in the United States could find itself coping with this problem. It is, no, as I said, it's not something that's restricted to, you know, a specific mosque in a specific or me- major metropolitan area. That's crazy. Um, so it is something that we we. We can probably find a way to to serve the American people better by giving them the tools, giving their community leaders the tools to respond to this kind of extremist threat better than we have so far.
3: So as a bit of a teaser to our listening audience, in the next few weeks, I'm actually going to sit down with an ISIS defector uh, that cooperated with the U.S. government and understand the radicalization process and and hear it from his perspective. But I think it's very useful for individuals that have gone into the criminal justice system, served their time, paid their penance, and now are out they can tell the story. They can deter others from following that Absolutely. that path because they saw the light, so to speak. So again, that's a teaser for for my next podcast. I'll do these very judiciously in the future, but I think that's an important subject. We're we're getting ready to wrap up. I want to end on just a couple questions. We don't have a national counterterrorism strategy yet. We worked on it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not ready to be published, as I understand it, from an outsider's. Uh, standpoint uh, i'm not sure exactly where it is, but I think it's uh, forthcoming. What do you think a us CT strategy should look like?
0: I think a, a a successful CT strategy should seek to enshrine as I talked about earlier those unique special capabilities that allow us United States to be the best in the world at certain aspects of counterterrorism work, and particularly the hard edge of CT work, the world you grew up in, Chris, the world that I was privileged to kind of watch as a partner for most of the last 18 years. You want to make sure that we sustain our investment in those capabilities, and you want the strategy to explain why that that investment is necessary. At the same time... um, in, in my mind, getting back to what I said a few minutes ago, that CT strategy should also look to apportion responsibility for CT work around the world beyond just the United States. And so, this is where the the, the partner part of a CT strategy is so important. We're not going to succeed doing this all on our, on our all on our own. So we need to develop a strategy that allows us to resort to be, to provide resources to provide expertise, to provide training, to provide um, um, capability to our partners around the world, because we need to leverage their success rather than own the problem in every every corner of the world. And again, I would bring back the word humility into the conversation. Uh, in the past, I used, I was, I'm guilty of this, my fingers were on the keyboards of some of the, um, were typing on the keyboards that produced some of these earlier strategies under the, both President Bush and President Obama. And so, when you use words like destroy or defeat, you, you imply, not only you imply, you tell the American people that we are going to put terrorism or the terrorist threat in the rearview mirror on a particular time horizon, probably of four or eight years. And I'm not sure that's a realistic objective to set. I understand why, for political purposes, no one likes to write a strategy that says we're going to muddle through we're going to manage we're going to cope you know those words don't right, sing right. off the page but if you if you were advising president trump right now and you could tell him that there was a strategy we could pursue that would eliminate terrorism as a primary national security concern by the end of his four-year term or his eight-year term i think you'd be lying to him and so i would i would recommend to those who are writing that strategy to be clear-eyed and realistic and again, this doesn't mean that I'm um, a fatalist about this or that we're doomed to be um, to, you know, to, to all die at the hands of terrorists. I just think we need to be more careful about how we use language to describe our objectives um, because I think we signal to the American people that we can make this problem go away when my actual view is that we can make this problem manageable and make this problem Sized to the point that it's not a preoccupation for us. I went to my 30th college reunion last year, Chris, and I gave a, a talk as I was given a distinguished alumni award at Wesleyan University, my, my undergraduate institution. And as part of the remarks there, I said, I want you... Or, so I, said, I said it in my remarks that I am preoccupied every day with terrorism and counterterrorism because that's my job. It's my responsibility. But I don't want them, my audience... Of fellow alumni to be preoccupied with counterterrorism and terrorism every day. They should take for granted that their government is, is keeping them safe. So I'm not a fatalist about this, but I'm also a realist, and I don't like the idea that we signal somehow that we can wipe away terrorism as a problem.
3: And uh, first of all, our f- former colleagues will have an opportunity to listen to the podcast. I think we're both in a position to, to influence some thinking. Having had the scars of the counterterrorism process sure. and the counterterrorism fight. It's it's incumbent upon us to share those lessons with not just the, the listening audience, but also our former colleagues. So that, that gets us to really wrapping up this great discussion on counterterrorism today. You're now responsible for CT programs at the McCain Institute for International Leadership. And we already talked to you uh, or talked about your being a... Uh, professor of practice at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. So what does that work entail and how are you giving back and how are you influencing thinking?
0: I'm glad you asked and it it touches on, it'll circle back to the conversation we were having about countering violent extremism in a minute. What, What I liked about the McCain Institute was that they view themselves, we view ourselves as A do tank, not a think tank. The objective is not to help the government write a strategy for counterterrorism from outside, or to convene a conference that will come up with a bright idea to, you know, to help the government win the war on terror. I'm not sure. I believe that's really much of a contribution from from the research uh, community of, of institutions around town. But what what the McCain Institute believes is that we need to go out there and actually tackle problems that we have with real tangible work in the field solutions and so the McCain Institute has had very successful programs dealing with the problem of human trafficking um, doing work around the world to advance the rule of law um, investing in next generation leadership and they've done that as I said by getting outside Washington and actually doing work with people Um, I'd like to do the same thing in terms of the counterterrorism programs that we're just now setting up at the McCain Institute particularly in this area of countering violent extremism We were pretty hard, Chris, you and I, in criticizing ourselves in government for not doing better on CVE a few minutes ago. But I would also, I think you'd agree with me that government may not be the best actor in some cases to do this work. When the FBI, when DHS, when NCTC shows up on your doorstep in your community to talk to you about extremism, it can be intimidating and it can send the signal that the government is here to collect intelligence on you and to to spy on you and to get you to, to turn in your kids um, uh, who might be involved with with, uh, with radical ideas. It's much easier to have a non-governmental organization have that conversation and share that wisdom and that knowledge with communities around the country. So I'm talking to countering violent extremism professionals, experts right now, trying to find ways to fill some of the gaps that I think are there in the work that government does. And so if I can contribute to that um, sharing of knowledge, that training that capacity building with communities around the United States. If I can do some of that from the McCain Institute, that would be a, a contribution I'd be proud of. It may only be on a micro scale. It would, may not start out as nationwide, but if, if we can make you know, individual communities around the country more resilient, more capable of responding to this extremism challenge, that's a win from my perspective.
3: Well, you're still giving back, Nick. That's a worthy endeavor. Thanks for that articulation of what you're doing now. I just want to take a moment to to thank you for your long service to the US government. We were in the Oval Office together. I listened to you speak on counterterrorism, counter-terrorism issues with absolute authority and always well informed by the intelligence. So I'm gonna stop talking and ask one final question, or actually I'm gonna turn it over to you to offer you an opportunity for just some final quick words to the IC professionals that serve both of us so well, and also to your, your former team at the NCTC. I'm gonna turn it over to you.
0: Well, thank you for that, Chris, and, and thank you for the kind words about my time in government. Um, Most people who are listening to this podcast also won't know just how long and loyally you served. Um, The the last year you served in the White House was certainly probably the most challenging and and rewarding year during your your career of public service. And and I know just how grateful I was to have you there to work with during year one of the Trump administration. Um, We were also talking earlier, just the two of us, Chris, about what we both miss in government. And I think we agreed that what we both miss most is our personal and professional relationships with colleagues, um, and that is the thing about departing government that that stung the most to me. Um, and so, when I think back uh, to my time in government uh, and my time as director of NCTC, that's the stuff I value the most: the the, the relationships I had with professionals who brought everything they had to the table every day uh, to keep their fellow Americans safe. So if I had a message to them out there, if they are listening at, at NCTC or anywhere else where I have uh, former colleagues, it would be, keep doing what you're doing, because I really, really, really admire you um, for staying with it, for continuing to fight the good fight. Um and I would also ask that you continue to kind of ignore the political environment we live in um, because it's a difficult political environment. I think everybody would agree with that. Ignore the political environment um, we are living in and focus on the mission because if, if you can't get motivated by the mission of terrorism, of countering terrorism, then I don't know what could motivate you. So um, I wish my colleagues well. Um, as, as we talked a few minutes ago, it's a zero tolerance for failure business. I know how hard your job is, but I also know how good you are at your job, so thank you.
3: Nick Rasmussen, thank you very much for joining us today.
0: The International Spy
2: Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.
0: Hey all Rick here.